All right, so this is the second week of Advent. How many of you guys grew up in a liturgical church setting where you celebrated the church calendar fully? How many? How many of you grew up in an evangelical setting where you did not celebrate the church calendar? Oh, but you did. You celebrated it partially, right? We celebrated two linchpins in the Christian calendar, which were Christmas and Easter. Both of those are within the Christian calendar. Liturgical folk in the Methodist, Lutheran, Presbyterian, Episcopal, Catholic backgrounds, they just flesh that out a little bit more. Um, the season that we are in right now is the season of Advent. It actually is the beginning of the church's calendar. Roy, you old Presbyterians, you guys uh, observed all of this, didn't you? Dry, dusty, the chosen, frozen Presbyterians, right? Uh, I was with uh, Roy. I was with an old preacher friend of mine one time, and he said, I, "I, I heard about a new denomination the other day, and it starts with a P." And I said, "Presbyterian?" He said, "No." I said, "Well, we're Pentecostal." He said, "Yeah, but it's not Presbyterian." I said, "Puritan?" He said, "No." He studied a little bit. He said, "Episcopalian." So our Episcopalian and Presbyterian brothers and sisters observe the calendar a little more fully, but the beauty is, I love the church calendar because all the church calendar is, is chronological sacrament, chronological symbolism. And we begin this journey of chronological symbolism at Advent every year. We don't wait for January, but just after Thanksgiving, that first Sunday generally, we began a five Sunday procession toward Christmas. So that five Sunday procession toward Christmas is referred to as Advent. And out of Advent, we go into the season of Christmas. And then we have the 12 days of Christmas. Now you guys know the 12 days of Christmas song that actually comes from the church calendar. Beginning on December 25th, there are 12 days, the 12 days of Christmas. And that season is called Christmas Tide. I like, I like the word Christmas tide, um, especially that last part of the word tide. It's simply saying that something like Christmas, uh, the incarnation, uh, the coming of Christ, the birth of the Christ child, is such a momentous occasion that you couldn't possibly confine it to one day, so it's like a tide. It has ripple effects. And so you take 12 days and you celebrate what Christmas meant, the incarnation, one day is not enough to look into that manger and see the face of Christ and what all of that means in terms of Emmanuel and God with us. So we have Christmas tide, and then the 12 days of Christmas, does anybody know? It summates and finally comes to fruition in the 12th day in what? Epiphany, right, so we have epiphany. And epiphany generally was that uh, time that we marked by the baptism of Jesus or the beginning of Christ's ministry. All of these were kind of sacramental means through which we taught the Christian story through the calendar. And so Epiphany was when Christ appeared, Epiphanos, the light appeared on the scene and we began to recognize that there was something special about this man and his ministry began. Uh, a lot of Protestants celebrate a season after Epiphany called uh, the season of Epiphany, but most, the Catholic calendar, actually goes into a period called ordinary time. And ordinary time is not a time to dismiss, 
It's simply a time when we remind ourselves that all days are holy. And if you really recognize the purpose of holy days, holy days are not to tell you that only they are holy, but holy days are to remind you that every day is holy. Just like an anniversary or birthday. You don't celebrate your loved one's life only in the birthday, but the birthday reminds you that their life is valuable every day. So it's a sacrament that points to the value of life always. So you have season of ordinary time. And in the ordinary time, somewhere in the, season, in the month of February, we shift into the season of what? Lent. And we move into that 40-day journey minus Sundays. It's really a 47-day journey, but we take the Sundays out, and it's 40 non-Sunday days because the Sundays are referred to as little Easter's. And we move 40 days toward the cross and the resurrection. And then after Easter, we enter into a season called Eastertide. Again, the same thing as Christmastide. Easter is too much to confine to one day. So we contemplate the resurrection and what that means to our lives in Eastertide. And then Eastertide, seven weeks of Eastertide summates in Pentecost. And Pentecost wasn't just a denomination some of us grew up in. It was that season, 50 days after the Passover, that day when the Holy Spirit fell in Acts, the second chapter, which was really the birth of the church. And Easter, or rather Pentecost, that 50-day period, was borrowed from our Jewish ancestors. Because after they crossed over the Red Sea following Moses, there was a 50-day period, and then there was a celebration called Pentecost. So we have actually conscripted our Jewish roots and celebrated that in Christian form. And then after Pentecost, we enter into a season, June, July, August, September, October, November, of ordinary time, where we experience the holy and the humdrum and the banal everyday existence of life. And then we come back to Advent. So Advent is the season that we're entering into now. Advent essentially <clears throat> commemorates the idea, and I would really like to have an open discussion with you tonight, so open your hearts and minds and mouths a little bit. Advent is a season that emphasizes two things, longing and expectation. Advent is born out of the messianic longing of our Jewish forebears, our Jewish ancestors. For hundreds of years, our Jewish ancestors, those who gave birth to the progeny named Jesus, our Jewish ancestors longed, does anybody remember what they longed for? They longed for a Messiah. They longed for a Messiah in the, in the Hebrew, Mashiach, which is translated in the Greek, Christos. They longed for a Messiah or a Christ. Now, why did they long for a Messiah or a Christ? They longed for a king that would follow in the lineage of their golden era king, David. A king that would restore Israel to national prominence. A, a king that would restore them to strength and power. The people of Israel, born of the children of Abraham, were a small nation in the Levant, right on the eastern coast of the Mediterranean, that was strategically fixed between three continents, Asia, Europe, and Africa. And these little Palestinian nations in that land of the Levant, that land we call Palestine, these little nations, most of them were city-states, 
For the first few hundred years of Israel's existence, they were probably no more than just a few thousand people. And along with all of the other Palestinian governments, these little, these little uh, states uh, had kings and governments that fancied themselves, all of them, fancied themselves to be the people of God. They fancied themselves to be the chosen people. They were small, but they were holy. They were small, but they were powerful because God was somehow on their side. All of them pulled the trump card, the rook card, the ace of spades, that God was actually their God and God was on their side and took up their offenses and took up their defense and took up their cause. Israel was not an exception to that rule of those little city-states. And Israel claimed to be the people of God. And yet, when we follow their heritage from about 1200 BC, after the time of Moses, up to about the time of Christ, really, the, the years leading up to the birth of Christ, this little group of people in that prone position between these three major continents in a major commercial thoroughfare, this group of people was never more than just a rag doll. A, a tattered rag doll that was fought over between the Dobermans and the Rottweilers and the German shepherds of these major nations around them. Whether it was the Egyptians or the Mesopotamians, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, those that we now know as the Turks, the Ottoman Empire, all of those nations generally were fighting for that piece of property. And so these little nation states were little more than a nuisance or a means to an end for them. And Israel was always experiencing subjugation through slavery. They were always experiencing occupation. They were always having to barter a deal with the nations around them to maintain their existence both politically and spiritually. But Israel always believed, this is interesting, it harkens back for me to the days of my childhood, the late 70s, the 80s, the Christian coalition and the moral majority. Anybody remember those days? The people of Israel always fancied themselves to be the nation that would ultimately not be subjugated, but would subjugate all nations to their final rule. They believed that they would be at the helm of a veritable United Nations and that they would not be averse to the other nations, they would not be harmful to the other nations, but they would bring peace to the world and Jerusalem. Think about it, even this week, the vestiges of this religious argument carry over even into modern politics. And even this week, our president made a move that has set off repercussions in Palestine and Israel saying that Jerusalem is indeed the capital of Israel, not Tel Aviv. We're going to move our embassy there. Why does that create such a stir? Because that argument is rooted in an idea, a pre-Christ, a pre-Christian idea that Israel was ultimately the people of God. God had given them that property and Jerusalem would be the centerpiece of the world's geopolitical situation. And there would be a marauding king, a powerful king that would sit on the throne in Jerusalem and all of the nations would genuflect to that king and that king would yield peace for the entire world. This was Israel's belief. Interestingly, that's a belief that I grew up with. 
appropriated to the United States of America. It's a belief that finds its roots even in the idea of manifest destiny and divine manifesto and the idea of European people that they had prerogative, dispensation, jurisdiction to go across the waters and to subjugate groups of people, to take a piece of property at whatever expense because God had given them that property because somehow they were the people of God. I grew up with a fervent sense of this idea in the Christian coalition and the moral majority. Somehow, Lee, I was taught as a child that God had birthed this birthright, had given this birthright to the United States of America and somehow we were the capital, we were the new Jerusalem. And even now, this propensity to make Jerusalem the capital, no matter the impact, relates back to this messianic vision of longing for this geopolitical power that would be Christian, that would be Jewish in root, and that would have a Messiah as its centerpiece. This, this is the seedbed of Advent. Christianity conscripted this longing for a Messiah, this longing for the establishment of a kingdom. We conscripted this. We conscripted it by saying that kingdom will not be established in this world necessarily through political processes here, but that kingdom will be established with the second coming of Jesus. When Jesus returns upon a white horse in the rapture of the church to establish his kingdom, there will be a millennial reign, there will be a final battle of Armageddon, and then the enemies will be cast down, and God will establish his kingdom on the earth, and the new Jerusalem, John said, will descend from heaven, and it will literally set upon the Jerusalem that now is, and the gates of that city will be open day and night, and there will be a new heaven and a new earth, and there will be a lamb in the center of that throne, and that lamb will rule the world. And so Advent, from a classical, traditional Christian perspective, tells us that we are to long for that coming of Jesus, that we are to long for that return of a king to this earth, to establish a kingdom where the lion will lie down with the lamb, where the child will play with the snake, where swords will be beaten into plowshares and there will be peace on earth and goodwill toward men. This is the traditional idea of Advent. Now, while I, as a progressive in hermeneutic, no longer am looking for a literal white horse and the sound of a trumpet, this idea of longing for a world made right still has a ring of essential truth for me. And so the thing that I would throw out to you for the next couple of weeks for us to wrestle with, not just in Saturday night form and in sermonic form, but as we really think about Christianity and why we're here tonight and about our sensibilities as a Judeo-Christian people, what is it that we are longing for? I went to a funeral today and Trenton, Tennessee, drove over, was at the funeral and drove back and got here just in time for church. And as I was coming back, I was talking to a young woman, a young lady who is 
uh, a huge advocate within the LGBT advocacy work. She was at Biola University last week and she was doing some really tremendous work there and she called me this afternoon and she was reporting in on all of the things that they had done there at Biola and then she said, but I am personally horribly depressed. And in spite of the good work that I'm doing, she said, um, my partner is still wrestling with evangelical sensibilities and her love for me and my love for her um, is difficult for her and she still wrestles between this being the gift of God and this being the temptation of the devil. And this young woman, 36 years old, poured out her heart. But what's really germane to this discussion is after she poured out her heart, Lee, about all of that, she said, sometimes I just wish that I could go home. And I said, tell me about home. This girl, Butch, doing a good work and yet brokenhearted. I mean, how many of us don't understand what she was wrestling with there? The love of her life, come here, go away because of her own religious convictions and struggles. Depression, somewhere between prayer and Wellbutrin, she's trying to find her way to equilibrium. And in frustration, Tara, she just says, I just wanna go home. And I said, tell me about home. She said, you know, heaven, and I said, tell me about heaven. And she said, well, I guess it's more than heaven. I guess it's, it's Jesus coming back and just ending all of this for us. And I said, what happens on the other side of that? Caleb asked her, so what happens on the other side of that? She said, well, I guess he wipes away all the tears from our eyes. And she called her name and she will be at peace and we will live forever and I said, do you really believe that? She said, I want to. I said, do you think it's going to happen literally like that? She said, I don't know, but I know, and this was what was profound. She said, I know something needs to happen. And that was a beautiful turning point for our conversation. There needs to be some sense of redemption and the wrong made right. And Van, you and I talk about this all the time. Even that sense of the binary, the wrong and the right, the good and the bad, the angst and the peace, is that really as defined as maybe we think it is? Advent is a season of longing. I am no longer longing for the rapture of the church. I am a Christian who is no longer longing to have a big mansion and literal streets of gold under my feet. And yet I am a Christian who has not thrown the baby out with the bathwater because I think that baby is actually a very valuable baby. And when I look into the manger at Christmas time, I am compelled to not throw this one Christ out with the literalness, Craig, that we all grew up with because I think there is not something less than the literal. I think there is actually something more than the literal. And there is something more refined and beautiful and something worth longing for. So, to that end, 
I would like to ask you, what are you longing for? Is there a sense of longing in your soul for resolution, for redemption, for correction, for the better? Is there a sense of longing? And if there is a sense of longing, because I know there is with me, how would you articulate that sense of longing? Could I throw it to you now? And could I let you speak to that? Would somebody be brave enough and share with this congregation, as a young woman shared with me this afternoon, she just simply wants peace in her partner's heart religiously. She called that heaven. What is the heaven that you long for? Caleb. Should I stand yeah. up? Yeah. Okay. Um, the idea that you are sharing, the idea that um, longing is something that is, is kind of the centerpiece of religion, I, I think. I, that, that's the idea that's been running through my head as of late, is the idea of, of Jesus that, you know, that there is all these things of, and like this, the strangest things that they said to me in, uh, in, in like pre-K care or something like that, where they said like, he sits in your heart and he like eats popcorn and all this stuff. And I just, Jesus. I never understood, yeah. I didn't know Jesus I, I didn't know that either, but, um, but the further I go with it, the further I realize that it, it's the idea that, that whatever you find peace in, like what, whatever you find joy in is that. Whatever, basically the, the idea of longing is longing for Jesus, which can take many forms, and um, basically your entire sermon summed up, but... Um, something that I've always found is that um, I completely forgot what I, my original statement, but um, something I've always found is that it's it's always it's always from a moment to moment basis, at least for me as of as of sixteen years of life. <laughs> uh, but um, and and the further. Oh, I'm trying to find a way to, I, I, I did this too quickly. <laughs> but the further it goes on, the further, uh, basically the deeper the rabbit hole goes because it's, it's, it's all about um, what you need in that moment. And something that, something that I, I figured out is financial piece is a big part of that, is that it's, people throw out the idea a lot, but it's, it's actually a deeply biblical ancient, ancient thing to just be at a point where you don't have to worry about that. And then going from there on to where can I go next, basically? What can I do to expand my horizons more? Um, and one big thing for that, of that for me was the limiting of, of basic evangelist church. Um, we called it hipster church back in, in Franklin. Um, where it's it's just this idea that's that's limiting the idea that it just doesn't it, it's the idea that basically Jesus will write and come in with the trumpets and the white horse and the everything and I never understood that and I can never 
get behind that. I can never get behind the idea of sacrifice. The word sacrifice kind of makes my teeth grit personally. Um, so I, I, I can never grasp that and I can never find that idea in, in, in that. And the further I went on, the further I got challenged and challenged and challenged and realized that I lean more towards something along the lines of Buddhism. Um, I, I was talking to Justin Pitt, a great member here, uh, who used to lead the, uh, the high school youth. And I was like, I, I don't know where to describe this. I don't know how to stand on it. And he just looked at me and said, don't. Just let this be your thing. Let, don't call it something. Don't aspire for labels. And I think that's, that's probably my sense of longing. Do you have a sense of longing? Do you have a sense that it's going to be taken care of way out there or it's here? Personally, because, you know, I'm, we've always been very working class, so it's, it's always been more here than here, so. Thank you. Uh, I, love, I love hearing a 16-year-old wrestle with spiritual longing. Isn't that nice? It's inexpressible. Let's go to the other end of the spectrum and have a 94-year-old. Are you 94? 104. Yeah. Um, I was just looking at uh, Caleb's hair and talk about longing. <laughs> I have a very... I don't know that it's small, uh, but it's different um, in the sense that what I long for is very local, although it has universal application. What I long for is to be a part of a community uh, where, um, I'll call it a body, call it even a body of Christ. I long to be a part of a community that is making an impact in the community where it lives. And that impact makes people or helps people be reminded of someone named Jesus. Uh, and honestly, more and more here, uh, not less, but more and more here, uh, I see you reminding me of Jesus. Um, and I long to see that spread. I don't really... Uh, care much about what's there. I care a lot about what's here. And what I want is to see uh, us be so attractive and, and so winsome uh, that we remind people of someone named Jesus, although they may not know the name. And that's my longing. You, you and I have talked 
you're not 94, you're 83. 83. And, I mean, you've gone through everything from even your current struggles and, and the C word and all of that. When I've sat at your townhome with you, you have talked about the other side. And I hope you have another 20 years, but you're, it, you're more mindful of it than Caleb at this point. Do you have longings about that and a back that doesn't hurt and all, or is that not really something that weighs on your mind? I have to admit that there were years in my life that I had that longing on the other side, but now I'm not worried about that or concerned with it at all because I have what I would call some sort of weak trust. Um, and so it, uh, I'm not worried about anybody anymore. And, and uh, what I believe is that, and I hope you'll forgive me, I believe that everyone is in. Um, and um, what I hope is that more and more those of us who are part of this body will, will remind people of God. That's lovely. I, Van, you probably don't do longing, do you? I was just thinking about that and thinking, <clears throat> what is it that I long for? And you're right. I don't. You can't long for something you already have. So, I wish for the progression and the advancement of humanity, but it's happening. I think that so the longing would be maybe I've just the longing would be for a consciousness a greater consciousness to know that everything already is and I want to be able to see it more clearly but um, you're right, longing's not something that I have. Um, I would like to talk next week, Carol, I'll give the mic. I'd like to talk next week about this, because I think it's not an either or, I think it's kind of an, an ethical tension. But I think Israel longed for Messiah Jesus came, he fit the bill, and then he really upended their ideas. He not only upended their ideas by saying, hey, the kind of geopolitical marauding king that you thought it was going to be, I'm not that at all. But it was even more than that. He almost in 
likely in the future. And Jesus points them back to themselves and says, the kingdom of God, the longing, the ramification, all this stuff, it's here and it's in you. Jesus literally, for 2,000 years of Christian tradition, we thought Jesus was God coming to birth in the second person of the Trinity saying, I'm here now, and yet I think the longer we know, the more we're seeing that Jesus was not God saying, I have showed up, but Jesus was God saying, this is where I've always been. Incarnate, in flesh, in creation, in creation. And I'll walk the scripture next week. If you like scripture around here, I think that really is the beauty of the progressive church. The, the first wave of liberal Christianity, almost just in the biblical text, is that we were embarrassed of what we had inertia built up and what we interpreted. But as progressives come from the evangelical background, the thing we've seen is that these liberal sensibilities and better ideas actually are embedded in the text itself. So I want to walk the text with the next thing to show you that as Jesus progressed through the gospel record and ultimately come to the establishment of the church in the book of Acts. My belief is that the second coming, the first coming and the second coming of Jesus were not linear happenings that should have been waited on or project another experience, but they were contemporary experiences to the point of Einstein's theory of relativity to say there is no past, present, or future. It is here, now, and the man said, simply waiting for us to be aware of. The kingdom is here if we would let access it. So I think that I think the real purpose of Advent now is not to continue projecting out for another election or another nation or another leader or another hero or another movement. I think the real work of Advent is for the longing we have for a world we may write for us to access that in the immediate and to recognize that everything we have to do is here now. And the streets that are paved with gold will actually line the walls of our world if we would have built in where we there. This is the same you had something to say. It doesn't uh, fit, but uh, my greatest longing is what uh, is in the gospel of Mary's song. That Mary, uh, when she, I think it, she had met with Elizabeth and both realized they were pregnant, and she said, My soul magnifies the Lord, for he has raised the lowly and brought the powerful down. And there's just a longing in my heart for, as when I look around, for to see that in reality, for the great to be brought down and the lowly to be exalted. So if you want to go to heaven, this Wednesday night, room at the end, will be here. And 15 people experiencing homelessness would love to have and if you're looking for Jesus to return Thursday night, we're going to be wrapping presents for children.
above that four or five course, the kingdom is here and it's now. Let our longings yield the appropriate results. Can you say that? Amen. This is Advent.